inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Today we have nine questions and um, if any of you are new, welcome. I answer any and all mental health related questions. There's nothing off limits. There's no wrong question. There's nothing we should be embarrassed about. I try to get through as many questions as I can each and every week and I ask for them over on the community tab of my podcast channel on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube and search Ask Katie Anything, You'll be able to find it. The channel itself is called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. It's in the community tab on Sundays that I ask for these, okay? Without further ado, let's jump to that first question. And question number one says, Hi, Katie. When someone has spent almost their whole life being their quote-unquote trauma self, for example, by masking, numbing, isolating, etc., how does one cope with slowly discovering who they actually are as they heal? I spent six years at uni getting a degree in something that I have no passion for, and now I feel like I'm starting from zero again as I pursue something that I actually have an interest in. I feel like I'm a million years behind everyone else, and it's making it very difficult to not fall back into feeling depressed and anxious. I'd love to hear your and the community's take on this. Thanks. Of course, um, I think this is a great question and something we don't talk about enough when it comes to healing from trauma and even eating disorders, self-injury, just mental illnesses as a whole, there's a period of time where we have to kind of figure out who we are without it, right? When we're not still acting in our trauma self or when we're not still acting out in eating disorder behavior, who are we? And it can take us some time to discover that. And so with, with regard to this question, we're going to focus primarily on the trauma response. Like I said, masking, numbing, isolating, um, my best advice is to be patient with yourself. A lot of times when we are traumatized, we can be developmentally arrested, meaning that we can often get stuck or feel kind of emotionally stuck at a certain age. Usually it's the age either right before the trauma happened or when the trauma happened. Um, so let's say like six years old or eight years old, we can find ourselves even, even as an adult acting kind of like that child self of ours. And that can happen for many reasons. Number one is that because of the trauma, we might not have been, like felt safe to slowly discover who we are and go out on our own and make new friends. We might've been kind of isolating ourselves on purpose. Like this person said, isolating, numbing, masking. Due to that, we can sometimes be developmentally arrested at a certain age, okay? That can happen. The second is that it can not feel safe to do certain things. And so we won't meet with friends and go out as a teenager or, you know, feel safe to go to school or whatever. This person said they went to school. So that's not the case here. But sometimes it can, it can feel unsafe to go out into the world and do things. And therefore, a lot of the things our peers were experiencing and learning about themselves, we didn't get to do. Um, another reason that we can feel like we are like, we've pursued this life that we don't even like or know, and we don't understand why we've done that. It can be because we've been so numbed out, again, back to this person's, you know, uh, question saying that they masked, numbed, isolated, isolated. If we've numbed ourselves out so much, we might not even know what we like or dislike. And if we had trauma in our childhood, we might not have felt safe to express what we liked or didn't like. Does this all make sense? I just want you all to understand why this happens because 
we can kind of judge ourselves based on it. But what I want you to try to do is slowly change the conversation that you have with yourself about this process. Because I would assume what you're saying to yourself right now is, why did I have to do this? Oh my God, what a waste of time. What a waste of money. And I don't even like that. And now I'm doing something totally different. And now I'm behind and everybody else is ahead of me and blah, 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 right? All that shit talking, judgmental thought process that we have. I want you to do your best to not engage in that conversation and instead try to use some bridge statement like thoughts. These would be things like, sure, I may feel like I'm behind, but at least I know what I like now. Or, you know, I I feel behind, but I do acknowledge that it take that everybody's on their own path. Right? Maybe it doesn't like maybe that doesn't pertain to me necessarily, but I know that that's the case. I know those things don't seem very positive, but they're not as negative and you will feel the difference. And I know I've talked about that over and over, but I just feel like it's worth repeating. So we're going to have to, sorry, something's in my eyeball. Um, We're going to have to change the conversation we have with ourselves about this process because you've been through a trauma or repeated traumas. So much so that you only now are getting the opportunity to do things that everybody else had the opportunity to do way before this. Does that make sense? It's like if someone grew up without any trauma in their life, there was never this feeling of I can only depend on me or I have to shut down, shut people out, you know, to do this or I'm just going to do go with the path of least resistance or I'm going to do what my parent or caregiver whoever told me to do and we can struggle to think for ourselves because you know for all the various reasons I talked about at the beginning and then all of a sudden we wake up from it and we're like oh shit right and so if people didn't have any trauma they felt free to do things and discover things and get to know themselves as we change and grow I feel like I'm constantly getting to know myself and so I want you to, instead of saying that you're starting from zero, it's okay to acknowledge that feeling. I think sometimes when we when we try to talk back against something or use a bridge statement, we can feel like we're, we can't feel that way. Like it's wrong to feel like you're starting from zero. It's not wrong to feel that way. I just don't want you to give that feeling any behavior, meaning any action. I don't want you to take any action on that thought. Because if you guys don't know, like cognitive behavioral therapy kind of functions under the premise that when we have a thought, that thought can just be a thought, but usually we have a feeling about that thought, right? You maybe had a thought that like, I should be ahead or I'm so behind. And then the feeling was, I feel like I'm starting from zero. I feel like such a loser. And then the behavior would be, and then I beat myself up and I sabotage or whatever. And then I have more thoughts about it, right? And we kind of go thoughts, feelings, behaviors, thoughts, feeling behaviors. And so we have to slow that down. We have to stop engaging in that. We have to recognize when we're caught in that cycle and instead be like, you know what? I'm not where I thought I would be because that feeling's okay, but I know where I want to go and how fucking cool is that, right? And it's just that reframing. And so I encourage you along with the bridge statements to do some reframing to allow yourself to see it for what it is, that Sure, we can always acknowledge and validate the fact that trauma sucks. And if someone did it to us, if this is something that, you know, someone harmed us, fuck that person. Throat punches across the board, spit in their faces. We hate those people, right? They stole time from us and we can be sad and it's okay to grieve that. But then we have to get excited over the fact that we've moved past it. And now you get to, you're you're actually pursuing something you're interested in. 
and you know you're interested in it because you you're getting to know yourself. How cool, right? And sometimes it just helps to focus on that component of it versus focusing on all that was taken or all the pain we sustained. Because we can obviously think about that all we want and we can, you know, roll around in it, but it only does us so much good. And I encourage you to allow yourself to feel that and to grieve that, but then know it's also okay just to move forward and to be excited about the future. And I know that goes against a lot of things, probably your trauma response told you, but that's where the healing really is. And that's where we build a new relationship with ourselves. And I'm excited for you. Congratulations. Because I don't want you getting caught in this cycle where you fall back into depressed and anxious feelings and thoughts. We have to stop that with bridge statements and reframing. And then a little bit of it's like celebrating the wins. Okay, keep me posted. I hope that that helps. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie, why do I still feel like a child? I'm 36, but I don't feel like an adult. I do adult stuff like I pay my rent, I pay my bills, I cook, go grocery shopping, and so on. But for example, when I talk to others my age or slightly older people, I always have to remind myself that we're the same age and I don't have to be intimidated. Maybe you need some information about me for context. I grew up in a very difficult family, got bullied all throughout my teenage, my childhood and teenage years. I developed an eating disorder um, at 16 with severe and debilitating OCD at 18. I hope this helps. Thanks for all you do. Much love from Switzerland. And we have a comment on top of this says, also, I feel like a child and it's very embarrassing to admit when I go into a toy store to buy a gift for someone, I get all excited and I feel the need to buy a Barbie doll or a stuffed animal for myself. But obviously I don't. Why not? This really creeps me out about myself. I'm almost 40. When will I grow up? Okay. Lots of thoughts here. Now, the difficult childhood, this difficult family, the bullying and the OCD and the eating disorder and all that, um, I would argue you've dealt with complex trauma for much of your life. And that has developmentally arrested you in many ways. Often, we can feel like a child when we're an adult for for many various reasons. But one of the most common is that developmentally arrested feeling, where even though um, you know we we are, we did grow up, we the years keep passing, we're stuck back at that time when the trauma began or right before the trauma began, because we missed out on that chunk of life where we got to kind of figure out who we are. Um, learn about our own emotions and what we like and don't like and navigate independence little by little. And so we can still feel very childlike, even though the years have passed and we've grown up. And so that's a component of it. And I'll get into the comment secondary because there's some inner child stuff I want to address there. But I think I'd be curious. So the person who asked this question says, it talks about intimidation, feeling intimidated by people that are technically their age. And I would want to know where that intimidation comes from. Do we feel like, are we hypervigilant? Are we worried someone's going to injure us emotionally or physically maybe? Are we intimidated where we feel like we're behind? Like we're not quite where they are? Are there certain milestones we feel like we should have hit? I'm not sure where that intimidation comes from, but it might just be, and not just to, I'm not minimizing by saying just, I'm saying it, we think it could be all those things, but it also could potentially be the way we talk to ourselves about our place in life. Because for some reason, we as society worldwide have these like expectations in place around when we should 
do all sorts of things. Uh, meet a mate, get married, have children, buy a house, pick a career. There's all these like milestones and we should be meeting them by a certain age. And like, I don't know, an example would be a lot of my girlfriends felt pressure to get married before they were 30. Oh my God. But most of us didn't. I barely made it before that. And it's still, you know, I felt lucky to meet Sean when I met him. I thought that was like early in life to meet someone. And But I also was one of those people that didn't really think I needed to get married or didn't feel that pressure really. Um, we can feel this pressure to do things by a certain time. And it's all bullshit. And I do not subscribe. I don't think it's it takes into consideration all sorts of factors, right? There's so much that goes into... Um, who we are, how we decide to be what we want to be. It doesn't give us any freedom to choose. Maybe we don't want to get married. Maybe we don't want to have kids. Maybe we don't know where we want to live. So why would we buy a home? Maybe we can't afford it. Like all of the things, like I had student loans up the wazoo until recently. And so, you know, doing a lot of things was limited. I was very limited financially. Um, and I think there can be a lot of pressure or assumption that looking our age means X, Y, or Z. And that's why when we look at someone who is our age, who chose a different path, we're like, wait, they must be much older, right? We, we, we connect some of the choices they made to adult actions. And so it might behoove you to spend some time being curious about what you think an adult is. What's that look like? Does it mean you have to have kids and be married or own a home? Are those the only things? I would argue more important things are that we have worked on our own bullshit because we've all got it. I'm emotionally intelligent and I have I have loving relationships. I'd argue that that is more important than any of the other things I mentioned. Um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. So dig into what an adult looks like. I hope that you're able to see a therapist to start processing through or at least acknowledging the trauma and working it through, whether that means in talk therapy, EMDR, um, exposure therapy, somatic experiencing, any type of trauma therapies. I have my whole book traumatized where I break down all a ton of different treatments. Um, that could be what's holding you frozen also. And then I do want to move into the comment about wanting to buy you know, a Barbie doll or a stuffed animal when you go to the toy store, I'd encourage you to do that. And I'd encourage you to dig into inner child work. Now, you can go to my Amazon shop, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. And I have some books in there on inner child. I also have an inner child workshop that I offered a few months ago. I think it was in September. Check that out. Um, we recorded it. You can access it. There's downloadable worksheets. I walk you through what inner child work is, why it's important, how it helps us heal. Because whenever we feel very childlike, my gut reaction always goes to this inner child work because we're kind of frozen at that age or we never were allowed any enjoyment as a child. And so as an adult, we can feel that urge, that need is still there. The inner child of us is like, hey, you forgot about me. I really would love to have that Barbie doll. And I would encourage you to allow for that. It's not creepy. 
you're trying to give you yourself something that you didn't get as a kid. So be curious about where there's those needs come from. Also like buy the Barbie doll and then go home and consider what that meant for you to be able to give that to yourself. Where are there other things that you would like to give to yourself? And that might be some compassion. Maybe that means you can stay up late and watch your favorite show. Maybe you can eat your dessert first. Maybe you can play with that doll all night if you want, you know, doing some things that we might not have been able to do as a kid or we're against the rules or we were reprimanded for being a kid, like playing with a doll or something. I don't know. I've had a a ton of different patients over the years. Some say that it wasn't appropriate. You know, I was a boy and they said I couldn't play with dolls. I'm like, go ahead and play with a doll if you want. If that's what little you wanted, give that to them. Or I've had people tell me that, you know, their parents would say, oh, that's just childlike. You're too old for that now. Like they decided that they should have moved past that versus allowing their child to grow and develop at their own pace. So digging into that, I think is really helpful and healing. And to the original person who asked this question, the fact that you have severe and debilitating OCD and developed an eating disorder at 16, I think there's some trauma going on there. And I think that's what's really holding you. Also, I want to acknowledge the fact that having a mental illness in general can be developmentally arresting. It can make it hard for us to to move forward like, you know, others without that. And so we need to go back to you as a kid, talk to him or her, see what they have to say, listen, and see what you can offer them. And some of that might be play. It might be letters you write back and forth from child you to adult you and vice versa. A great tip is to write in your non-dominant hand when you're writing as child you. Just makes it more authentic, I think, and easier for us to, you know, have those conversations. Um, But dig into those things. So I think there could be something with trauma and inner child work. I have the inner child workshop. There's some books I offer. I have videos on it for free. You know, I don't know your financial... Uh, abilities. So no pressure. Um, Also acknowledging and taking some time to dig into what a quote unquote adult looks like. Uh, Spoilers, if you think about it, like our parents had us and didn't know what the hell they were doing. Having kids doesn't mean that you're an adult. It just means you have more responsibilities. Okay. Um, Nothing really makes you an adult, by the way, like buying a house. But I'm curious what your beliefs are, because we all have them, whether we want to admit it or not. Right. And so dig into that and see if we can reframe, going back to what I said in the last question, we can reframe some of the ways that we talk to ourselves about it. Um, Yeah. And I have a feeling that you have some conversations consistently with yourself talking about how childlike you are or how behind you are maybe in certain things or not checking the boxes of X, Y, or Z like other people. Um, Yeah. Those are just some of my thoughts and things to kind of dig into and be curious about. I hope that that helps. And for the person who wants to buy themselves those dolls or a stuffed animal, go for it. And then do some of that inner child work because I think that they're they're the ones that are speaking up and telling you, please buy me that. I'd really like that. And they never got the chance. So let's give them that opportunity. With that, let's move into question number three. And question number three says, hey, Katie, can you explain why self-compassion seems to be so important in healing from trauma? I've been with my therapist for 18 months and she regularly talks about having compassion for myself. I can't feel sorry for the child in me that caused so much to happen to her. When I read this, I was like, that's interesting phrasing. The child in me that caused so much to happen to her. She brought it on herself and I hate her for it. Hmm. We'll get into this. 
I don't want to try and find compassion for her. She doesn't deserve any. I've spoken to my therapist about this, but sometimes I get annoyed and threatened with her compassion for the child that I hate. I don't want to live the rest of my life through a veil of trauma, but having self-compassion seems to be a non-negotiable in healing and I'm stuck. Thank you for the time that you give to helping us. Of course. Okay. I talk about this in my inner child workshop and I might encourage you if if you can afford it to to purchase it and to go through it because like I said, um, it's four hours worth of content. They're broken into two different chunks, two different videos and there's downloadable worksheets and hopefully helpful information in there for you and recommended books and all that stuff. Okay. So the reason I bring that up is because in that workshop, I talk about how important it is that when we do this inner child work, when we try to get in touch with child us, when we try to offer them compassion, we can get stuck and we can feel angry or we can feel sad and we can feel hurt. We can feel all kinds of things. But when we go to do that work, it's really important that we allow whatever comes up to come up and we allow ourselves to express and process through that. Meaning that in this case, when you hate her and you're like, you brought on yourself, you son of a bitch, we're so mad, right? That we allow ourselves to write some angry letters and be really fucking pissed off. It's okay to be mad at younger you. We don't, self-compassion, it's important, but it doesn't have to be the first thing that we're able to offer. In fact, I find it really difficult for most of my uh, patients with PTSD or complex PTSD to be able to offer that to themselves because it can feel so indulgent. We're already so judgmental. We have a lot of shame, blame, guilt, embarrassment that's swirling around. It can be really confusing. Why would we have compassion for younger us, right? So I encourage you, write some nasty, hate-filled letters, shred them or keep them or whatever, but we're going to have to process through this anger because Anger, obviously, it's one of our, um, it's a secondary emotion. I've talked about that a lot, but I talked, I think it was last week, maybe the week before someone was talking about like primary emotions. I don't know if you've watched Inside Out, but they do a great job of explaining these kind of, I don't call them primary emotions, um, but they're kind of like basic emotions. It's like our makeup of being a human. And the reason these emotions exist is that they're kind of like these knee-jerk reactions to protect us or to help us express something before we can process it, right? So anger is one of those. It's a protective mechanism. And it's okay to kind of identify that anger, allow it to exist, and then maybe realize or be curious about what it's protecting you from. I find the most common reason we feel angry is because we feel hurt. And obviously, we're still responsible for lashing out at people or ourselves we're still responsible for those actions. However, it's protecting us from something, right? Anger is a very ah, outward, push people away type of emotion. And it does that for a reason. And so be curious about it. Allow yourself to dive into it a little bit. I don't want you wallowing, but I do want you feeling free to feel it and experience it and express it. Because I have a, a feeling that when you were growing up, it didn't feel safe. Hence why we feel like it's our fault, we're to blame, we're angry at younger us, and all of that internal turning the anger in. I think it's because we were told that it was our fault and we were blamed for everything or nothing made sense. This person said they loved us, why'd they hurt us? So it must be me. I must have done something. 
trust me, I've heard it all. I mean, everything from, well, they abused me. So why did I go back? And we forget that's why the inner child work is so important. We forget how few resources we had as a child. We couldn't leave. We didn't have any money. We didn't have another home to go to. Maybe we told a parent they didn't believe us or we're so afraid to tell them that they'll hate us, right? It's just, we have to remember what it was like to be us at that age. And that's why the inner child work can be so helpful. Get, finding a photo of yourself when you're really young can be incredibly helpful for us just to realize how little we were when this was happening. Um, but again, that's more of the compassion side. I'm not opposed to you throwing a tantrum, being angry, writing nasty letters back and forth. You might be surprised how angry little you was because I think that's actually where this is coming from. It's how angry you as a child were with what was happening and how powerless you felt or helpless you felt in the face of all that trauma. And so I really want you to dig into it. Don't have to shy away. I don't want you harming yourself. If you feel like you're a risk to yourself, please tell your therapist and put together a safety plan before doing this work. But I encourage you to allow yourself to dig in because if we can't explore the anger, we're never going to get to that self-compassion. I feel like the anger helps us understand where we're coming from and what little us is experiencing and what they're going through. And we have to give them the space to get it all out. It's almost like, you know, when you, you're you just so angry about something and so frustrated with a situation, even if you feel like you're to blame, sometimes you just want to scream. Like I remember one of my favorite films you guys know is... Um, uh, under the Tuscan sun. And it's an oldie, but a goodie. And there's a part in this film where she is starts dating this guy in Italy. And he, they never get back together. It's like, it's hard for them to meet just the timing of everything. They go like a month or months without seeing each other. And so he starts dating someone else. They only went on like two dates, you know? So it's not like it wasn't a big commitment, but to her it was. And when she finds out he's with someone else, she comes back to her house and she breaks this little vase. And she's like, what more can I do? She blames herself for the fact that, that relationship didn't work out. And she's angry and she throws this fit. That's important. Sometimes we have to get that out. It's not that it was her fault or that, you know, she, she fucked this up. It, it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't, that wasn't going to work out. It was part of her process. And sometimes we can get so caught up in the fact that we, you know, it's not, it's not very, you know, ladylike or adult to express anger. We can feel like it's not appropriate or we don't have a right to do it. And we can hold on to it and we can stuff it deep inside and blame ourselves. But that expression, the what more can I do? The the throwing the fight, the throwing the tantrum, the yelling, the screaming is part of healing. It's part of admitting that I'm, I'm hurt and I'm upset and I'm mad. And how dare that person do that to me? Or how dare I allow that to happen to myself? I'm so disappointed. I'm so hurt. And I think in that throwing of the tantrum, in that expression of the anger, you will learn more about your process and be able to acknowledge the fact that younger you didn't have a lot of options. And through this anger expression, I believe we will be able to find our way to some compassion. It might take a while and it's okay. But like I said, write those angry letters, throw tantrums, scream. Um, you know, if, if you can't do it safely in your house, because people will be like, what's happening? Maybe go in your car and park in an empty lot, lock the doors, but scream out, throw a fit, be angry. Anger is okay. I know even trust me, as a recovering people pleaser, anger is not my favorite. And I still struggle with it because it feels very hurtful for others, uh, self-serving, out of control, a little dangerous. But I'm here to tell you that anger is important and it's healthy. 
it's part of our, again, go back to those basic emotions, right? The joy, the sadness, the disgust, the fear, and the anger. Allowing ourselves to feel it and to express it means that we're not shoving it down in our gut and it'll turn into other things. It can turn into suicidal thoughts or self-injurious thoughts. It can turn into a physical illness. We can have digestive issues because of it. Anger is not meant to be stuffed down. It will come out. It's meant to be expressed. It's meant to be vented and to talk to talk about it. And so I encourage you to allow yourself to vent that because we'll never get to the compassion if we don't go through the anger first. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that says, I would love to also know why it's so hard to show it, meaning self-compassion. I'm told if this happened to your child, how would you feel? And I know I can show them compassion, but then to show myself that same compassion, I just can't do it. Why? Because it's not us. And we always think, whether we want to admit it or not, that the rules don't apply to us. It's different. We're different, right? This is my child. And of course I love them, but child me, what an idiot, right? We can struggle to put ourselves in that childlike state, in that age that they're at. It can feel not impossible, but like we see it from adult eyes. And even as we look from little us, we are adult us. And so it can be really hard for us to remember. That's why I said getting a photo of ourselves at that age and writing letters back and forth and acknowledging or taking time to, to acknowledge the limitations of us at that age, like financial limitations, um, housing limitations, who was in our life that was there to support us. We often didn't have anybody that was there. We didn't have any adult looking out for us, or maybe we did. A lot of times we'll have a teacher or a coach and then they leave or we graduate from that class, right? And then we don't have access to them anymore. I want you to consider those limitations. What did you really have access to? That's why it's easy for you to offer it to your child because they're still a child and they're yours and you see them as a baby or as a a toddler or as a six-year-old, right? But us as adults, we look back at younger us and we're like, she should have known better because I know better now, right? And we apply what we know now to us then and we don't recognize or we don't, unless we make an effort to, it's hard for us to recognize those limitations. Okay. Another person said, I struggle with this as well. To add on, I often feel like I'm not allowed to feel hurt or sad because it's my fault. I was a naughty kid. I was too sensitive and it was not that bad to cause trauma. Hmm. Like my father's angry outbursts, spanking, kicking, and verbally, verbally humiliating didn't leave marks and my siblings are okay. And now that I feel estranged from my parents as an adult, I struggle to feel the pain related to it since I feel like it's my fault because I'm bad at maintaining relationships due to depression. I'd love to hear Katie's thoughts on this topic. Could it be kind of some dysfunctional protective mechanism not to feel compassion for ourselves because A, we didn't speak up for ourselves or B, we might bury the pain under some self-blame and shame? I feel like I've kind of talked about this a little bit in the fact that we can think we're a naughty kid and we deserve what we got. Again, we have to go back to in some way, allow ourselves to acknowledge our limitations as a child. And just because we were lashing out or we were a naughty kid, I also be very curious as a therapist, I do this a lot where I'm like, I'm curious, like, when did you start acting out? What do you think makes you a quote unquote naughty kid? Um, if your child acted like that, what would you do or how would it work? Or Because the, the angry outburst from your father, the spanking and the kicking, the verbally humiliating you, you don't think that that might've led to you Uh, lashing out or acting out in some way it would for me and then you're told you're too sensitive hmm right we didn't feel safe to express anything 
So we tucked it deep inside. We stuffed our anger down. Hence why you can't show yourself compassion because you're like, I should have done better. I shouldn't have been so sensitive. I shouldn't have had needs because it doesn't sound like those were okay in your family. And so I think it's because expressing anger as a kid or um, expressing compassion, loving on yourself, you don't even know what that looks like. No one offered that to you potentially. And it might be helpful for you to express, like I was talking about earlier, express some of that anger first so that we can get to the self-compassion. We might want to lash out. I might encourage you to reframe what it means to be sensitive because sensitive is just human. It just means that you were a kid that had feelings. When parents say that their kids are too sensitive or drama queens, it's not because their children are that. It's because their parents are so uncomfortable with their own emotions that to see them expressed by their child is too much for them to bear. And so they try to shut it down by telling us we're too much. I know sometimes that's hard to acknowledge, but if you think about it, yeah, that rings true. Our parents may not have been that emotionally intelligent. They don't really have any way to manage their own. Your father clearly didn't. Angry outbursts, spanking, kicking, humiliate. He had his own shit and he was taking it out on you and that's not okay. And I know you're saying your siblings are okay. No one in that house is okay. We've all just tried to figure out how to deal and move forward. Everybody's different, right? Everybody has different levels of resilience, different coping skills, different defense mechanisms they use to protect themselves. No one came out unscathed. We just all process it differently. And yours might be the most outwardly expressed pain or trauma. And yes, I think it was bad enough to cause trauma because we can't even offer ourselves any love and compassion. Yeah. And so to answer the final question, could it be some kind of dysfunctional protective mechanism not to feel compassion for ourselves? I don't think it's necessarily a dysfunctional protective mechanism. I think it's a lack of understanding of what that would look like. It might behoove you to dig into what compassion would look like. What would it look like to offer that to someone? And then maybe what it would look like to offer it to ourselves. I think being in an abusive situation leads us to believe that we're not good enough, that something's wrong with us, that shame. Therefore, if something's wrong with us, why would we want to offer ourselves compassion? We wouldn't, right? And so I think it's more of that self-blame and shame associated with trauma that causes this. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question is, hey, Katie, I've finally managed to pluck up the courage to start asking for support when I'm struggling. But the problem is I never know what to say after that. If someone asks, how can I help? I panic. I start to shut them out because I'm only making things worse by asking for help. If I can't figure out what I even need, please help. Thank you for all that you do. Of course. Let's start to think about this because I can't tell you what you need or what to say, but I can tell you how to figure it out. Now, when it comes to asking for help, I'm in incredibly proud of you for reaching out and speaking up. You've got the first and the arguably the hardest part taken care of. Just that initial speaking up is really difficult sometimes. So you're there. Yay. Now, if they say, how can I help? Ahead of time, we need to know what that looks like. And here are some ideas to get you started. Do we need someone just to check in? Maybe that's what we need. Could be as simple as saying, you know, I just need you to hear me out and maybe spend, you know, spend the afternoon with me. Or maybe can you check in on me tomorrow? I'm having a tough time. Or um, I just wondering if you could maybe take me to my therapy appointment, right? There's 
things that people can do to assist us. It could be just by being there. It could be through a text check-in. It could be just showing up. We could need them to take us somewhere or to help pay for something. It depends on the, you know, what the relationship is like. We can ask for all sorts of things. But if we're going to speak up and tell them we're having a tough time, then we're going to need to know what we are asking them for. So I encourage you to spend some time thinking about that. Now, I know it might differ moment to moment, but overall, in a perfect world, if we could dream a dream of a perfect world where our friends and family knew how to support us and did it, what would that look like? And then ask them for a portion of that. In my experience, going back to what I just said, what we usually are wanting from those we love is just the check-ins and just to be there. And one caveat that I usually have my patients put in, and if you if this rings true for you, I encourage you to do the same, is to tell them, I don't want you to try to fix anything. I just want you to listen. That's all. A lot of times that's the problem we have is if we tell someone we need help, then they're like, well, what can I do? And then if we don't know, they can try to fix things the way, the best way they know how, and that might not be what we need. And so we need to make sure that we know to tell them, I don't need you to fix anything. I just need you to be here, or I don't need you to have answers. I just need you to check in on me and see how I'm doing, or I need you to take me to this appointment or whatever. Think about it, take your time and write down a couple bullet points and just recite it and recite it and recite it and recite it once it feels correct, by the way, so that when someone asks, even if we're already kind of in a panic or already feeling overwhelmed, we can dig into our memory and we can pull out those things. Okay. You got this. And I'm glad you have people that, you know, want to help and you've asked and, and they, they're going to assist. That's beautiful. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, some clients are challenging. Yes, as a therapist, they are. And I've learned that therapists have coping skills for that. Like maybe you should talk to someone or random IG posts. I'm not sure what you mean by that, but yeah, we do. I do share some of the funny ones, even myself. How do you hold unconditional positive regard for these clients? And what makes a client challenging? What if my therapist has to practice coping skills before my sessions? Hence, she is always running to the toilet before mine. Sometimes I think she really enjoys talking to me and other times, especially when I'm very dissociated or reluctant to try new things, I'm convinced that she was waiting for the hour to end. My people pleaser self is constantly worried that I'm being difficult and draining my therapist's energy. This is a great question and it, it kind of made me laugh because as I was reading it, I was like, ooh, we've got some people pleasing here. And then it, at the end, they said my people pleaser self. So yes, some clients are challenging. Um, the reason your therapist is probably running to the bathroom I think I've talked about this in an older video, but either way, um, it's because we have no time. We have 10 minutes in between patients and we all know that, th that therapy sessions don't end exactly on time. At the very least, they're a couple of minutes over because we end and then we have to pay and then you leave. And then in that time, as a therapist, we're supposed to have a snack maybe, get some water, go pee, uh, do our notes and get ready for our next patient. It's not enough time which is why a lot of us end up working after, which is what I usually do, because I like to keep on time. I do my notes a little bit during and I just finish it after my day or when I have my lunch break or whatever. So your therapist is running to the toilet because she probably hasn't had an opportunity to do so before. That's why. Um, so has it, I would argue has nothing to do with you. Now, when it comes to difficult or challenging clients, what makes a client challenging can be many things. Number one, it could be 
their lack of emotional intelligence about themselves or their situation. And so there's a lot of learning that we have to do up front. By the way, challenging isn't a bad thing. I think every therapist out there would say, sometimes we really like a challenge. Obviously, you can't have every patient be a challenging patient because that can get very emotionally taxing for the therapist. And so it's a balance. Everybody's different on which types of patients we can manage. Like I take a lot of eating disorder and um, borderline personality disorder patients. And a lot of my colleagues are like, how do you do that? And I'm like, I don't know how you do what you do, right? We all have our strengths. We all have our weaknesses. And it's finding the right fit. And so... Um, I also want to uh, define unconditional positive regard. A lot of people don't understand what this is. And they can have a tough time understanding how uh, a therapist can sit with someone who's so clearly mentally ill or uh, aggressive or a bad person. Like people who, there's lots of criminal psychologists that sit down with serial killers and offer them this unconditional positive regard. And people think like, what the fuck is wrong with you? How can you do that, right? We're taught to do it. And what unconditional positive regard means is that you can say and do whatever you need to do and say in session or with me, you know, in our session. And I can hold the space for you and offer you the compassion and the love and the understanding. That's it. I offer you this kind of non-judgmental blank space for you to say what you need to say without me reacting. And that's what makes therapy work, by the way. And so I know a lot of people can't understand that and they can have a really hard time with it, but that's what it is. And that's a really, if a therapist can't do that, they're not a therapist, unfortunately. So now uh, again, challenging is not bad. Challenging just means it's it's a challenge and I enjoy a challenge. I love being able to do more research and try to find a different way in or try different coping skills with my patients and roundabout ways of getting them to see something, right? Um, But yeah, we have to have our own self-care in order to continue doing our work, period. If we don't, we burn out, we get overwhelmed, our own life deteriorates, we can find ourselves being extremely emotional, all sorts of different things can happen for us. So that's why it's important as therapists to take care of anybody in the caring field, I would argue, like health, uh, caregivers, anything like that. We uh, even, I mean, honestly, everybody, but anyone who's caring for someone else, taking care of yourself first is important and extremely vital. Now, I think it's this people pleaser self that is jumping in there because you're worried about your therapist and not concerned about you getting the most out of therapy and being able to use that time for yourself. Everybody has tough sessions where we can't get ourselves grounded. We're just too dissociated or defense mechanisms are popping up left and right, meaning that we appear very resistant to change or very reluctant to even engage in therapy. That's normal. Your therapist is used to it. But I would let your therapist know this is happening because that's the cool thing about therapy and why I always talk about the importance of this therapeutic relationship, because we can use it to our advantage to prepare us for other relationships in our life, right? I would be incredibly shocked if this is the only time you've seen this type of behavior playing out in your life. The I want to make sure I'm not taking up too much of their time. I That people please their stuff. I had assumed this is happening in all different parts of your life, but it's happening in therapy too, which means we can bring it up with our therapist and we can work through it. So let your therapist know this is happening. When I say work through it, it means that you're going to be able to speak your mind about what's coming up for you. And your therapist is going to get to dig into what's the origin of that. 
assuage your fears about it and figure out where it's coming from. For instance, I had a patient that hated to take up space, kept saying, you know, maybe I shouldn't make another appointment. I'm sure other people need it more than me. And it all came back to the fact that in her childhood growing up, she was always made to feel, or she was always told, I guess is what I should say. She was always told that she was in the way She was always told because she was kind of like the accident child. She was like 10 years younger than all of her siblings. She was made to feel as if she was in the way, told that she was an accident, which what does that do to someone? Um, Told that, you know, you're being too dramatic. You're too sensitive. You're too much. And so, and not to mention one of her parents was an alcoholic. So she spent most of her life feeling like she was walking on eggshells, trying to not take up space, not be too much and, you know, do everything perfectly. So no one got upset. I'd be curious where it's coming from for you. That's just one example. And so I just want you to, yeah, be curious, spend some time digging into it and see what you find. And there's a comment on this as I experienced this as well. I feel like I'm wasting my therapist's time. Interesting. And trying to read how she is feeling. Although it makes me cringe to even write this as I know it has more to do with my people pleasing than to do with her. This is so hard. Yes, it's normal. For a lot of us, this is just a part of our healing, part of our process. I encourage you again, just like I said to the other question above it, let your therapist know what's happening. This isn't the only place this is coming up for for, in your life for you. So we need to let her know that it's happening and then we can work through it. That's what makes therapy beautiful. It's the one relationship where it's not about you and the other person, the dynamic. It's about you in this space and what comes up for you and helping you work through it in the most healthful way possible bring it up. It gets better. Trust me. And it's super common. Any therapist worth their salt is going to be able to work on that with you. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, how do I build inner self-worth? I don't mean confidence because I have confidence in some things that I do and I'm working on others. I mean that I'm worthy regardless of anything else. It doesn't matter how productive I am, what others think of me or anything else. How do I get the point to the point where I believe that I'm worthy? After a lifetime of, of abuse, I just don't believe, I don't at all believe this. I believe I've deserved the abuse, both from my parents and my husband. We were separated for almost a year. First of all, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. I hate both, all those people, parents and husband. Um, <clears throat> it'll come through in the healing. That deserving of the abuse, I believe, obviously it's coming from the shame component of our PTSD response. But I would, I want to go back to what I said. Was it question number two? Oh, question number one, maybe. Um, Oh, no, it was question number three with the self-compassion. I think sometimes we have to allow ourselves to be angry and we have to allow ourselves to lash out in a healthy way. I don't want you to harm yourself, but I'm saying you think you deserve the abuse that you got throughout your life. I want you to tell me why. And I want you to write some letter. I want you to do some of that inner child work. I want you to write a letter back and forth from younger you to adult you. Use your non-dominant hand for the younger you, dominant hand for adult you. I want you to have some conversations about this. I want you to find a photo of you at that age to acknowledge the limitations of you as a child. And then because of that, I want you to acknowledge the limitations of you when you were married to your husband, because we probably never developed a a safe sense of self. We probably look to him to make a lot of decisions and to help us decide. He maybe isolated us from people in our life. 
he probably told us that we deserved the abuse that we we should have if you wouldn't have done that then i wouldn't have had to do this which i want you to just think about that for a minute and i want you to acknowledge that yes we are all responsible for our actions and if you did something and then he lashed out you doing something's on you and him lashing out is on him does that make sense don't believe that that abusive bullshit conversation about like well if you'd done this no we all fucking make choices and we all act in certain ways and we're responsible for those actions period so i'm just putting that out there um so how do you get to a place where you believe that you're worthy i think we have to go through other things first i think because confidence i'm glad you have confidence and you know that you're good at some things that's amazing but the self-worth is going to come from that acknowledgement of shame and the allowing of ourselves to be vulnerable in therapy starting off with a very safe place to slowly become vulnerable we're going to have to do some of the inner child work getting back in touch with ourselves i have that workshop there's books you can buy i have videos about it um i think in that work we will come through it be angry we can throw some tantrums we can hate on ourselves but i think through that process we will start to see the limitations of us at the age when we started becoming abused by our parents and what that did to us and why that led us to thinking that the relationship with our husband was going to be good because it was comfortable we were used to it abuse is all we knew right once we can kind of see those things for what they are and it can take a while i know i'm saying it as if you're going to believe it and i know you're not it's okay to take your time coming around to this but when we come around to that that's when the worth starts to grow and then we start to see our parents and our husband for who they were and the faults of them and the fact that you know if you look at a picture of yourself when you're little like if that was your child could you imagine doing that to them or if you really loved someone and wanted to marry them can you imagine harming them in the way you harmed you just take some time to think about that what if it was one of your best friends and they were telling you about this what would you think then what if it was your therapist what if it was me imagine different people telling you the story of your life and what would be your response sometimes we have to remove ourselves from it a little to see it more clearly give yourself an opportunity to work your way through it we can't just come up with self-worth overnight you've probably been told your whole life that you're not good enough or you're too much or whatever all those abusive statements we're gonna have to take our time working our way through all the anger all the guilt all the shame all the upset all that abuse that trauma response Give ourselves a chance to work through it, to experience it, to feel it. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. And then we'll come out the other side and we can start to get to know ourselves. Kind of going back to the previous questions about like, how do I, I don't even, now I only know what I, what I like and turns out what I went to school for, I don't even like, right? It's okay to do that. It's okay to rebuild. Give yourself that opportunity. Take the time. We'll get there. Okay. But we can't just jump to self-worth. I mean, I could give you advice on like, notice what you're saying to yourself and use bridge statements. I feel like it goes back farther than that. I feel like that's like treating it too far out down the line. We need to acknowledge this other stuff first because there's still that part of you that thinks that you deserved the abuse. And we need that's where we need to hone in on and question, be curious, not judgmental. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to think like that. I just want you to question it. I want you to dig into it. And I want you to figure out, like, you know, doing that inner child work, what limitations did you have? What were you really capable of? What makes you think you deserved it? Is it because of things they said? Can we check the facts on those things? 
Maybe we don't have that. Okay. Well, then let's move through it. Let's let's talk to younger us. See what she had to say or he had to say at that time. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, I love your videos and have learned so much over the last several years. Thank you. Of course, I'm so glad I could be a helpful resource. The question is, did trauma therapy ruin my body? Hmm. How do I pick up the pieces of my broken life? When do you keep pursuing therapy? And when is it time to just accept a struggle as lifelong? For some background, I went through exposure therapy to address sexual abuse that I sustained as a child from ages three to nine-ish and a sexual assault at age 19. I began therapy and was a month in. Oh, and a month in, I had chronic pain. I suddenly lost hearing and had severe vertigo. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was diagnosed with Meniere's disease in both ears. Now, I don't know what Meniere's disease, I meant to look it up, but I didn't. Um, let's see real quick here. Meniere's disease is a disorder, of, a disorder of the inner ear that can lead to dizzy spells, oh, vertigo and hearing loss. In most cases, Meniere's, and I might be pronouncing it wrong, disease affects only one ear. Meniere's disease can occur at any age, but it usually starts between young and middle-aged adulthood. Okay. So diagnosed with that in both ears, vestibular migraines and stage three endo. I cannot work. I cannot drive or leave the house alone due to vertigo. Yeah. My aunt had that for many years. I know I was under a lot of stress when I began therapy and trauma work is hard. Did exposure therapy cause my health to deteriorate? I worked so hard in therapy, Katie, but there are still big triggers, nightmares three times a week, flashbacks three to four times a week. And I've been sort of stuck here for the past two and a half years. I've tried so many different things. DBT, CBT, exposure therapy, schema therapy, narrative therapy, somatic therapies, EMDR. I feel permanently broken. Should I keep trying to get better or accept my law in life that these symptoms are just my life now? Okay. Great question. And first of all, I'm so, so sorry you're having all of these, obviously, trauma responses and then physical manifestations. Now, I would, I have a couple of things. First of all, when we're diagnosed with these things, I always want you to make sure you're going to a doctor, getting everything checked out. And if they have a reason or a cause and they can tell you, it's important that we get that information, okay? Just ensure that we're not missing anything organically, meaning something that's occurring in our body, right? Like uh, some of my patients will feel really tired or weak and they'll think it's depression, but it turns out it's low iron or low vitamin D, right? We want to make sure we get things checked out. I'm sure you have, but I just have to say that first. Now, when it comes to trauma therapy, it's not the trauma therapy that ruined your body. It's trauma, Unfortunately, we know if you want to read and dig deep into some kind of limited yet important research called the ACEs study, I talk about it in my book, Traumatized. There are limitations to it, meaning that not all traumas are included and people can feel uh, like the trauma they sustain since it's not mentioned isn't a trauma. And that's not what I'm here to say. The important component of the ACEs study is and ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Now, ACEs, um, the ACEs study proved that our mental health affects our physical health, essentially. They showed a correlation between um, having adverse childhood experiences, otherwise known as traumas, and things like high blood pressure, heart disease, all sorts of other uh, ailments physically. And so when you're talking about all this stuff that happened, as a result of your trauma therapy, a huge part of me thinks is due to the trauma itself and the fact that you're working through it was stressful on your body. 
and could have definitely led to some of these things. Now, I don't want to, I'm not a doctor. Like I said, you need to see your physicians and make sure that there's nothing else happening. But I do know from my experience with my patients that when we work through the trauma and we find a therapy that is beneficial for us, much of these physical ailments, especially, and this is just in my experience, I'd love to hear yours in the comments below. Much of my patients with chronic pain have seen a reduction in the pain. Um, Yeah, like the achiness, even sleep issues, insomnia and stuff was able to resolve itself mostly. Um, I had a patient who had an, uh, I don't know if it was Hashimoto's, I think it was something different. I can't think of what it is. Anyway, it was, you know, um, had an overactive immune response, for lack of a better term. And when they finished processing that, that was still there, but it, it was so minimal. Like the outbreaks were so much lower. It was something on their skin. Anyway, I can't think of it. But anyway, there was a reduction in those symptoms. And so I'm not here to say, oh, you're going to process your trauma and everything's going to go away. Could it? Sure. May it not? I don't know. But I because it's come out around this time and you think it's correlated, it's important to let your therapist and your you know, doctors know. And it's important for you to continue working through as you can at your own pace. We don't want to overwhelm you. That might've been what happened. We could have moved too much too fast and be, been re-traumatized and made things harder. But I do think that we can get you to a point where it's not so painful or so overwhelming or so deteriorating or debilitating, right? And I want you to know that we can probably get you there. We just have to find something that works. And for you, it might not be the style of therapy since you've tried like everything. It might be the therapist. It might be finding you a good fit and going at a pace that feels good for you. But it can, just like I've always said before, when we work on things, sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. And we can trigger things in our system because our mental health and physical health are directly linked. It's all part of the same body, right? I don't know why people, I'm not saying you, but in general, physicians don't want to take into account people's mental health. And I'm like, they're all part of the same thing. Essentially, your mental health is a hard drive that makes your the rest of your body work. Why would it not be something we should take into consideration? When they want to get rid of med medications, they always get rid of the psychotropics first. Ugh, so frustrating. So, Trauma work is very hard. I think this overwhelmed your nervous system and could have led to a lot of things. I've had tons of patients struggle with migraines because of this work. Um, I Obviously, I'm not familiar with Meniere's disease um, and vertigo. There's a lot of different causes for that. So I really do think that, um, that if we can continue to work at the right pace with the right therapist, that it could lower some of the symptoms that you're experiencing, okay? There was a comment on this that says, on a similar note, I was going to ask how to know if you're, if doing therapy has re-traumatized you. And if so, what can we do to fix it? If your therapist went too fast, too much, pushed too hard, and you left feeling worse each and every time, and there was no, no coping skills offered, no resources, um, it felt like it was happening again, our flashbacks increased and all this stuff. And it starts at the beginning like that. I want you to know it's like gets worse at first because we're opening Pandora's box, right? We're digging back into things that happened to us. We can feel like we're experiencing them again. A little bit of therapy is potentially slightly re-traumatizing because we're, we're recalling it. It's not going to be comfortable, but we shouldn't feel terrified and like we don't have any skills. That's the difference. And that's why 
the re-traumatizing I, I find happens either when a therapist goes too fast, meaning you don't have enough time to calm your system down, you don't have time to use your skills, or they didn't give you any new coping skills or resources to manage, meaning they're just pushing forward and you don't have anything to deal with it. And so you feel threatened again, hence the re-traumatization. Because remember to be traumatized when we fear for our, the safety of us or someone we love. And if we feel like we don't have the capabilities to cope, it could be damaging. So that's really what I look out for. If you feel like you're going too fast or you feel like it's too intense or any of those things, that could be potentially re-traumatizing, okay? And it feels worse at the beginning, but you should have resources. You should have coping skills. You should have tools you can try to use to help you manage. If you don't have those, let's find you a different therapist, okay? Let's move on to question number eight. This question is, hi, Katie. Is it possible for fatigue or other, other physical symptoms accompanying mental illness to become permanent if the mental illness lasts too long? Can it permanently wear out your body? I have complex PTSD, and although I'm still struggling a lot, I've seen improvement over the last couple of years. However, my energy levels have kept going down. And even if my complex PTSD symptoms may fluctuate, my low energy levels stay the same. What's your experience with this? Have you seen patients recover from mental illness, but still have the physical symptoms or do the physical symptoms eventually go away too? In my experience, I've had patients whose physical symptoms lessen and some go away, but I'd never like to promise we don't know how you're going to react. I would see a doctor because I'm very curious about these low energy levels. Now, part of it could be due to depression, but part of it could be low vitamin D, could be, you know, any number of things. Like I was talking about before, there can be these organic causes to us feeling off, down, achy, be, you know, like I said, low vitamin D and low iron. I want you to get a full blood panel done so they can make sure that everything's operating okay. It should get better in my experience, it usually gets at least a little bit better. Now, obviously, if there's something else going on in your body, we want to know about it so that your doctors can treat it. And so that's why I would see your doctor, get checked out for all of that stuff, and then we'll take it from there. But in my experience, the physical symptoms do lessen. Some go away completely. Some are manageable. But we want to understand where this is coming from because the fatigue that can come along with you know, depression or complex PTSD as we process it through and it becomes less and less emotionally charged for us or affecting our life less and less, then the fatigue should go away as well because that's one of the main symptoms. And that would be how we'd know if the work, if the therapy was actually working. Does that make sense? And so I do not think, you know, the physical symptoms are permanent if a mental illness lasts too long. If we don't treat a mental illness, just like a physical illness, the symptoms can get worse and worse or they can take longer to go away. So we do, you know, want to be patient with it. I'm not sure how long, because you said improvement over the last couple of years. To me, I'm I'm thinking that things should be getting a little bit better. So I would go to your doctor and get everything checked out and then let your therapist know that this is happening because fatigue can happen for a lot of reasons. I'd be curious about how your sleep is, how you're, are you having flashbacks or bad nightmares? Um, I don't know if you have, you know, insomnia of any kind or sleep apnea. Very curious about that. I also wonder if you feel more fatigued at certain times, <clears throat> like before or after a session or something like that. I'd just be curious about all those things so we can kind of get an, a gauge from where it's coming from, what the triggers are, and rule out any physical stuff. Okay? I hope that helps keep us posted. Let's move on to our final question, question number nine. And this question says, hey, Katie, how important do you think a diagnosis is? 
For the past year, I've been struggling with low mood, self-harm, and disordered eating, and have been seeing a therapist to help with that. But having been diagnosed, oh, but I haven't been diagnosed with anything. Why wouldn't I have been diagnosed with anything? And do you think not having a diagnosis can affect the treatment? Also, because I haven't been diagnosed with anything, it also feels like I don't deserve to receive help because I'm not, quote unquote, sick enough. Why is that? P.S. Thanks for all you do. Your videos and podcasts have helped me so much. Of course, I'm glad I could be here. Okay. A diagnosis. Here's a couple of reasons why it's important. It's important in the States for insurance coverage. That's really it. I could get into the details of that, but the different diagnoses allow for different levels of treatment that's available through your insurance company, meaning you don't have to pay or your copay is lower or once you meet your deductible, you pay nothing. It it feeds into your insurance. And so when it comes to getting things covered, diagnosis is very important and it's going to be necessary. But when it comes to anything else, I find diagnoses to be helpful for the patient if it helps us feel validated and like what we're going through is real. And so if we're struggling and we're wanting to minimize or invalidate our experience, tell ourselves it's not that bad, I'm not that sick, right? This person says, because I'm not sick enough, you know, it feels like I don't deserve to get help. When I have a patient who starts feeling that way, I think it's important to share the diagnosis with them. Now, you might have a diagnosis, but not. I've learned, I've learned that I'm a bizarre therapist. I talk with my patients a lot before giving them a diagnosis, and I always let them know what that is. We talk it through. They can question it. They can agree or disagree. They can say, I don't want that in my record, and I can say, okay. There's a lot of different conversations that can be had around diagnosing someone, and I've learned that most therapists don't have those conversations. And I don't really understand why. I don't know if they're scared. I don't know if they don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't know if it's just like autopilot. I don't really know. But I would ask your therapist about it. I would say, it's important to me because I feel like maybe I'm not deserving of care. Like what I'm going through isn't that bad. You know, tell them what's going on for you. It's important that we speak up about this because chances are you have a diagnosis. They just haven't told you about it. That's what at least others in our community have told me. And I just find that very surprising, but to each their own, right? Everyone operates differently. And I do know that some therapists think it's not helpful because we can feel like a diagnosis is then like our identity, like part of who we are. I don't really feel that way. I think it's all about the ways that we talk about it and the ways we understand it and talking about it as as a diagnosis, a thing that we're working on, not this is who I am. You know what I mean? And so talk to them, ask them about it. I think for you, it might be an important key piece because I do find it validating for my patients to be able to say, oh, I'm not making this up or I'm not being dramatic. There's actually a name for what I'm going through. I have panic disorder, right? It can feel helpful to be able to say that and to put a a term or put language to it. And so I think when it comes to that, it's important for not for everybody though. Everybody's different. But in this case, I think I would talk to your therapist. I would tell them that it's important. I would tell them, you know, you're feeling like you're not deserving of care and they should be able to share with you either a diagnosis they've already given you or ones that they're considering because it also can take some time. Sometimes I'll see a patient, especially if I'm going to diagnose them with a personality disorder, something like borderline or narcissism or uh, uh, what's it called? Obsessive compulsive personality disorder. There's a lot of different personality disorders. I'm going to take my time with that because 
those are more pervasive. I need to be working with you for a longer period of time before I think I can ethically offer that diagnosis. And so, you know, I mean, you've been seeing a therapist or it says for the past year, you've been struggling. Um, I'd assume that means for the past year, you've been seeing a therapist. I think that is a, enough time to be able to offer one if there's one to offer. Um, but talk with your therapist about it. And if there isn't a diagnosis, I would cons- I would push you or encourage you strongly to reframe this deserving of care. Because I know I've talked about this over the years, but I just want to reiterate it here. We all deserve to see a therapist and to feel better. And diagnoses are so limiting. Just because we don't meet a specific criteria doesn't mean we don't feel like shit or that we don't need extra support. Don't allow a DSM or an ICD-11, those are just diagnostic manuals, don't allow them to limit your ability to get care or your you feeling like you're deserving of it. Don't let them take that from you. These diagnostic manuals are so limited. There's even talk of them not being helpful at all in the removal of them. People argue about it each and every year. And every time there's a new revision, there's more arguments about it. They're not perfect. So know that if it doesn't work for you and it doesn't mean that you got a diagnosis, that that doesn't mean that you're not worthy of getting care, that you're not deserving of help because you are. And I encourage you to reframe that and to question those thoughts and not allow them to just live in your head. Okay? Okay. I hope that was helpful. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Please share this podcast with a friend. Please leave reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave reviews. It really, really helps. I appreciate each and every one of you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.